So we're, here's what we're doing. We're looking at techniques that the authors use in story writing or storytelling to get you, the reader, to understand his point that he's trying to make. And, and so far we've looked at four of them, characterization, plot, uh, dialogue, and narrator. Those four. There's one left, and it's the setting of the story. So uh, when you have a story, it's usually set in a certain place or a certain situation, and the setting is sometimes important, okay? Sometimes it's important. Your job is to, determine, is to determine when, because it's not always the most important piece of the story, but sometimes it's the whole importance. So the setting provides the physical location of the action. Wherever the action is set, that's the setting. Now, here's what I'm trying to say about it. It sometimes adds atmosphere, and at other times supports the message of the passage. So sometimes it's just, it just adds atmosphere. Other times it actually supports the message, and if you notice the setting, it actually develops what the author is trying to get you to see in that story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two of them. My first one is way shorter than my second one. And uh, then I think we'll have time to uh, do the Jesus on the Lake of Galilee, which is the setting, by the way. Okay, so here's the first example of the setting of a story. And I'm taking you now to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So this is Matthew's record of when the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. Okay, when, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and he goes on then to talk about the Beatitudes. Blessed is the one who is meek and so forth. So the Beatitudes come next. But if you're following Matthew, Matthew says he went up on a mountainside and the people gathered around him and he's above them speaking to them. Okay? What if I told you that's not what happened? What if I told you Jesus did not go up the mountaintop to talk to the people? What if I told you he actually went down? because he actually went down. Luke tells the story in much greater detail. So here's Luke's account. It's Luke's account of the same Sermon on the Mount, and after this setting, Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So it says, one of those days, this is Luke 6, 12, one of those day, days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to them and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. And then it, it named them. And this is supposed to be uh, 17, not 12, it's a typo. Luke 6, 17 says, He went down with them 
and stood on a level place, and then he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew tells you Jesus went up a mountain and the disciples gathered around and he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Luke tells you he went up the night before, prayed during the night, identified the 12 disciples whom he designated apostles, and then the next morning he actually went down to a level place. So Matthew has him going up to a level place. Luke has you coming down to the level place. But in each case, Jesus is speaking from a mountain down to the people when he's finally preaching. But Luke is telling you he went up the night before, came down to the people and preached. Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus went up the mountain and preached down to the people. The settings are not the same, but they're both accurate. Matthew just didn't tell you everything. Luke told you everything. They're selective. They're not manipulative. Jesus actually went up the mountain. Matthew didn't bother to tell you that he went up the mountain the night before, that he spent the night in prayer to identify 12 apostles. He didn't tell you that. He just said he went up the mountain, stood on a level place and preached. Luke tells you he went up the night before, came down to the people and spoke to them. Why does not Matthew tell us the whole story? Just gives us this piece that Jesus is speaking down to the people from a mountaintop. Because Jesus, Matthew's theme is that Jesus is a king. And kings don't come down to the level of his subject. They speak with authority from above. And they speak down to the people. And Matthew is presenting you with the correct details, not, just not all the details. Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Greek guy. And he's saying, you know, Jesus came down to talk to you. He came all the way down to talk to humans. Both of them are true. Jesus in Matthew speaks with the authority of the king. He gives the Sermon on the Mount, and it is a firm sermon. And this is who gets in my kingdom. Luke is saying, do you understand that God came down to people? And he came, he came down to our level to talk to us. Both are true. The setting changes for them because of their theme and their audience and how they're bringing the message to the people. And Matthew is saying, you know, there was another time when God spoke from a mountain with authority and now that same God is speaking with authority now and you Jews need to listen. And Luke, writing to a Gentile, is just saying, you know, God has spoken to you. He came all the way down to talk to you. A different emphasis by the setting. This is one of those cases where the setting matters. There's a lot where they don't, but this is one of them where that setting really makes a difference. I'm going to walk you through one that is my favorite. You get all my favorites today. But you need to go in your Bibles for this one, and it's, Luke, it's John chapter 2. 
So I don't have this one on slides because I want you to see this story in its richness and fullness. You're familiar with this story because it's when Jesus turned the water into wine. And we used it earlier when people make mistakes and they go, you know, Jesus turned the water into wine and when you run out of resources, he will help with your resources too. Just turn to him and he'll help. That, people teach it that way. I'm going to try to give you a better way of viewing the story. And one of the better ways of, or the better way of viewing the story it comes by looking at the setting for the story of the wedding in Cana of Galilee. So if you look in chapter 2, verse 1, there's a setting for this miracle. And here's what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. That's the setting. All right, now, what is important about that setting? Uh, what do you notice about that setting? What, what do you think is, is the setting for the miracle of turning water into wine? A wedding, right? So when you read that, your mind goes, oh, a wedding. I know about weddings. That's an important time. No question. It's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. What, what's another piece of that setting? Cana and Galilee, right? Isn't it in the town of Cana? All right, so, so the wedding in the town of Cana of Galilee. My guess, however is that even though you know that, you never actually dwelt upon the most important piece of the setting. Have you ever asked yourself why John said it was the third day? On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The third day from what? What's the reference point? The third day from Wednesday? The third day from Sunday? The third day from the new week? The third day from what? We have no, we, have, we don't have a reference for it. But I'm going to suggest to you that if you don't stop and ask yourself why the third day is important, you're going to miss the point of the story. The precise point. You're going to get the big picture. But the precise point of the story comes because of the setting that this took place on the third day. Now let me show you. Turn in your Bibles and go back to chapter 1 and verse 29. And I'd like you to look in verse 29 and notice that John says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now notice, chapter 1 verse 29 says the next day. From what? How many days have we used up if there's a next day? If there's a next day, how many days do we have? Two. If there's a next day, there was a first day that allows the next day to happen. All right, keep count, would you? We're on day two. Look in chapter 1, verse 35. Oh, no, there's another next day. Right there. 135, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. What day are we on? Three. Look down to 143. The next day. Four. And on the third day, what day are we on? Seven. Four. You have four. And then on the third day, one, two, three. On the seventh day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. On the seventh day. All right, so now you go, well, the seventh day from what? That's not the point. The point is, 
When you think of seven days, what do you think of? A week. What happened in a week? Creation happened in a week. Creation happened in a week. And the God of creation is going to take water and turn it into wine. He's going to take water and create wine. And John is telling you that Jesus is not only God and has the ability to turn water into wine, but He's the Creator God of the seven-day a seven day creation. So the same God who spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1 is now showing up in the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and what He's doing here is the same thing He did before in seven days. Now you're going, come on, Rich, that is hocus-pocus. That's not what this is doing. I beg to differ with you. Watch. So if we were to read this miracle in John chapter 2, we would end up looking at uh, the, the miracle and the water and the jugs and so forth and so on. And we would get down to uh, verse 11. And the point is, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, do you remember the theme of the book of John when I did for you the book of John? Many other things Jesus did that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's the theme. And after this miracle, he actually says this was the first of those signs pointing to Jesus, and he revealed his glory. Now, if we were to think through what we've read in the Gospel of John by the time we get to this story, we would end up in chapter 1, which we're going to do in a minute. But I want to tell you this before we do that, and that's this. If you read the rest of the Gospel of John, John quits counting. There's no more the next days. He's done. He counted to seven, and then he quit. Because seven triggers something in your head that eight doesn't, and nine doesn't, and ten doesn't, and fifteen doesn't, and a hundred doesn't. Seven triggers something in you. Because there's, there's a framework for seven that is biblical, that does not carry with nine. You, when you think of seven, biblically are thinking of creation. Everybody does. This took place on the seventh day. The next day, the next day, the next day, the next day, and then on the third day. Okay. He's done counting. Read it. You won't find any more. But I'd like you to go back to John chapter 1. And I want you to notice the prologue. I want you to notice what John is going to teach in the Gospel of John. And I want you to notice, before we look in the beginning of it, I want you to uh, look down to verse 14. And it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 
Now notice in the prologue that he's saying, this Jesus came and we saw his glory. And he revealed his glory. And then when we read the miracle, he makes that statement at the end of that miracle that's similar to that one right there. Because he's thinking you read John chapter 1 and you paid attention. And when you read the prologue, your mind was active and you said, oh, Jesus is revealing his glory. And then you read the miracle and you said, oh, this is Jesus revealing his glory. What glory? What glory do you see in Jesus? Let's go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. Point number one. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What beginning? Genesis 1 and 1. So in Genesis 1 and 1, the Word was there. The Word was with God. There was another one there who was also God. And he was with God in the beginning, which means not only that they were both there, but that they were together there. So they were, he was God, there was another God, and they were working together. The Father and the Son. We also add the Holy Spirit, who gets introduced into this text as well. However, what we know from John 1, 1 and 2 is, Jesus was there in Genesis 1, he was God. He was with God. So there was another one, and he was in communion with that God. He was with God in the beginning. That's what the emphasis is. Now look what he says. Verse 3. The very next thing is, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And you go, wait a minute. Oh, Jesus is, is the creator God. He was there in Genesis 1, and if you read Genesis, you realize that there's a God who's speaking there. Do you understand that this is the Word? The Word communicates. A Word is something that captures this whole idea of communication. We've been talking about it for 12 hours. Who's the person of the Godhead who has revealed God? Jesus. You want to know how the Word actually communicated God to us? One of the ways was he made the world. And, and the nature itself, creation itself, cries out from the heavens. The heavens declare my glory. The heavens show the work of my hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Their voice goes out to the ends of the earth. And everywhere, creation speaks of us. Why? Because the Word in Genesis 1 called the world into existence and in His activity as the divine communicator has spoken the world into existence in such a way that God gets communicated to you. And he gets communicated to you in Central City. He also gets communicated to the people who live in the other continents on this whole planet. And there's other people that, 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 that see the same creation in South America, everywhere around the world, their voice is heard, declaring the glory of God and showing the work of his hands. 
Now, not only that, Psalm 19 also says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies show the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Day after day, they're talking. Night after night, they display knowledge. You know how God hangs the stars in space? He uses physics. He uses the laws of mathematics. I'm not diminishing God. I'm trying to exalt God. He's an intelligent God. We don't come up with mathematics. We discover mathematics. When God uh, designed the world, he used this thing we called physics. When he designed communication, he used this thing we called language, the language arts. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they display knowledge. And every time you look at a star in the sky, you should be telling yourself, geez, there's a lot of mathematics that went into that thing. The God that hung that star there had to know something more than me because I could have never done that. All right. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And that Word made the world, and nothing was made apart from him. He's the only creator God there is. So the speaker in Genesis 1 was Jesus. And the first of his miracles proves the first of John's arguments. The first of his miracles was, I'm the God of Genesis. I turned water into wine. Nobody can do that but God. But nobody can do that without the creative powers of God. And I'm God, but I'm the creator God. That's John's argument in John 2. And now you know the glory of Jesus in one sense. He revealed his glory not only as God, certainly as God, but not only as God. He revealed his glory as the creator God, the speaker in Genesis 1. Let there be light was Jesus calling forth creation, creation so that creation would call forth God because his name is the Word. That's John's argument. Now you go, Rich, come on, how do you know that? How can you be sure? Well, I'd, I'd like to prove to you one thing here. Uh, and if you look in verse 4, one more thing I should say, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know what the next miracle Jesus does is in John? After changing the water and the wine, you know what he does next? Raises the dead. Why? Why? Because John's building an argument about Jesus Christ showing you his glory. He's the Word. He's the divine communicator. And he's the creator God of Genesis 1. And he's the one that spoke life into the darkness of mankind. And he can, he, he can speak life into a person's life. And he, he proves it by raising the dead. So the God who created the heavens is also the God that fashioned man and breathed into him the breath of life. And so John walks you through seven days 
so that you trigger creation. And then he walks you out of this creative act to Jesus raising the dead. This is intentional. Don't think it's not. I'm not making this up. I, I, I saw it. I did not make it up. And you know where all this starts? With the setting. On the third day, and I said to myself, why should I care about the third day? I wonder what's going on. And I went back to John 1 and I started reading. And, and I had my notepad and I went, oh, the next day means that it's the second day. I came to the ne next day. Ne That's seven days. And setting jumped off the page. And I went, why is creation important? And I started reading John again. And I was amazed that my God, Jesus, is the God of Genesis 1. And I think that's John's argument. And it comes out of a setting. Sometimes the setting is extremely important. Sometimes it just adds atmosphere. Granted. Sometimes it's just there to help you envision some battle, let's say. And when it's there just to envision a battle, fine. It's just there to envision a battle. But you don't know that till you do a little research on it. So if you were reading Kings, if you were reading Kings, I can tell you that there are some locations in Kings that you miss the whole point of the story if you don't understand the setting and the cities in which those stories take place. So I showed you the, uh, the dating in the, in the book of Judges and the reference to Dan. That's a setting. Dan is in the northernmost part of Israel in the northern kingdom, and they were worshiping this idol until the day of the captivity. That's a setting. And you only know that's important if you stop and go, is Dan important to me? Where is it? Why? Yes, it's important. And it frames everything for you in that whole story. The same thing happens in Kings in a lot of those cities. And if I have time sometime, I'll share some of that with you. But I don't have time. Okay. Um, my class is over. I expected applause there, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, finally we're done. Yeah, not for me. Don't do it for me. I was just thinking you were going finally. Okay. Um, so I'm going to come back and teach you the story of Jesus and calming the sea. All right? We're going to do that. We're going to take a break. I'll come back and teach that story as if I were preaching it on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to deliver for you a sermon that I preach on Sunday mornings. And I'm going to use that passage as that sermon text. So if you don't want to hear a sermon, sit in the back and go to sleep. If you want to kind of pay attention, move forward. Now, here's the deal. Here's where we've been. We have simply walked through the process of interpretation in the same manner in which you were taught communication. You were taught little to big, I'm moving you big to little, but I'm following the same rules, the same principles, moving you from themes to sentences and even to words. And I'm taking you big to little. I'm showing you how the author 
put the text together to guide you, the reader, because that author has a capital letter A, and God wants you to know him. And the way he's given his information about him in, in detail is Scripture. He speaks generally to the whole world in creation. But if you want to know the Creator God, you've got to know this book. I've walked you through how to read this book better whether it's epistles or stories. I hope you take it to heart. I'm 67 years old. This year I'm going to be 68. People don't live much longer. So by the time you're 20 or 25, I'm dead. I'm dead. Someone, someone has to talk to the next generation. I will not be here. Someone has to teach the next generation how to read the Bible rightly. Practice it. Get good. Because God's going to call you on stage one day. And you're going to step up and say, let me show you how to read. Because you need to know my God. Please don't take this lightly. Don't think next week you're going to be experts. But if you work at it, you will be way better than me because you've got a lot more time to do it.